0: American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I'm joined again by my good friend John Presnell for a first in a trilogy of discussions. We will be dealing with our newest modernity as it emerged in the 60s in the work of great directors. Today we're talking about Michelangelo Antonioni's Blow Up. The 1966 American production set in London, worked on by Italians. It's full of talent. It's full of the glamorous, successful people of the 60s. Rock musicians, models, actresses. Things that people wanted to show up for, people wanted to see. That's what was so interesting at the time. And this is a movie about beauty, how it entrances us and what it conceals. And next, we will go on to a movie that's as drab and ugly as Blow Up is Beautiful... That's Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation from 74, which we will try to show is purposefully a complement to the Antonioni picture so that they make up a whole. And as if that were not enough, we will next go to Brian De Palma's Blowout, a far more popular movie, not often set in the same category with The Masters, but one that we will try to show is very ambitious, purposefully more popular, precisely to complement what it is that Antonioni and Coppola had to sacrifice to tell their stories, which is an appeal to the people who are actually involved in the things they're talking about. So we will be doing this trilogy to try to show the sound and image of beauty, of privacy revealed, what it is that people are searching for and what it is that they're trying to hide. Why is it that we are so obsessed with standing out, with publishing our lives on Facebook or elsewhere, and why at the same time are we obsessed with privacy, with encryption, with hiding and anonymity? This is what Antonioni and Coppola are trying to figure out for us. And this is what we will be dealing with. But we will start with Antonioni. First, John, thanks for joining me. This is your idea rather than mine. It would not have occurred to me to go back and look at Antonioni. So I'm very grateful. It has been wonderful to think through this and talk it over with you. And now getting to record this and to tell people what we think we have discovered. It's a pleasure and an honor. So thanks again. As always, I look to you for the ideas about what we're going to talk about next. Where should I look? What are we going to be thinking about?
1: (laughs) Well, it's great to be here, Titus, to talk about this movie from 66. Uh, Great Italian director Antonioni, as you mentioned. Sort of well-known cast, at least with Vanessa Redgrave and models of the time. It's a movie without much of a plot. We can speak of that quite simply. But you have these beautifully constructed scenes uh, and a great series of contrasts, kind of illuminating a life of swinging 60s in London, and yet at the same time, revealing more than just the surface. And uh, you know, the more we focus on the surfaces of this movie, the more we begin to see that there might be things, that the surfaces, the heart of things, to quote Leo Strauss. And Antonioni and his camera directors are surely trying to get us to look at the veneer of 60s. And as you mentioned, how the glamorous life, the beautiful life, fashion photography, rock music, youth culture, all of this somehow seems to kind of taken over in a way of London. And yet at the same time, we see parts of London that seem to be left out of this. And kind of an attention to detail between the past and the present or different things going on in the city. It's a very revelatory movie, On brings up some pretty major themes, so I'm happy to be here.
0: Yes, it gives far more of a view of London in the 60s than might first appear, but the more you stare at the appearances at the surface, film, after all, is surface, the more you understand what it is that you're being shown. And, of course, the technique, uh, the construction of scenes that look like painting and feel like poetry in their sequence works perfectly with the plot, which in as much as it is a suspense plot, it's somebody died, Mm -hmm. there's a mystery, Mm is all about staring more and more intently at the obvious and trying to go back between image and the objects of which the images are images to try to fit the story, to try to figure out what is real. And this is part of Antonioni's mastery. He put a lot of work into taking the story by Julio Cortazar, The Devil's Spittle, Las Babas del Diablo, which is innovative and high art or experimental in the sense that it keeps shifting the pronoun, Mm -hmm. that is to say, the narrator's perspective. This was one of the ways in which literature tried to show how our experience is far more explosive than it seems. The more you pay attention to it, the more things change on you and what you thought you knew turns out to be far harder to grasp. And Antonioni put a lot of work in with his writer, a longtime collaborator, Tonino Guerra, and his extraordinary director of photography, Carlo Di Palma. This is a movie Mm -hmm. made 50 odd years ago that still looks amazing and it's captivating at the level of cinematics in a way that most things now aren't. Somehow we're not progressing on this because it's so hard to find talent of this stature and let Mm -hmm. it loose, so to speak, on its chosen subjects. So it is still an enchanting movie movie and he transformed that kind of story into 60s London which is not what the high art aspect of this was all about Mm -hmm. but Antonioni wanted to speak about the times what is it about human nature that's revealed in the 60s in a way it hadn't been before and also what does this portend and one reason we're shown so much more of London than is needed for the simple murder plot is Bauer protagonist. Mm -hmm. David Hemmings plays him, a beautiful, incredibly English-looking young man, both instantly recognizable and also sort of charming in the way some 60s actors were, because he seems to be a bit of a dangerous guy. He takes strange Mm -hmm. risks, and indeed he learns he's taking far stranger risks than he understands. And at the same time, he's a rake, he's a cat. This guy is not a good guy. He deserves mm-hmm. everything that's coming to him, in fact. And in a way, we see that much more clearly now, since the aggression of eroticism and the violence that may be done to women is much more obvious now than it was then. But Antonioni sure was is trying to warn us. So maybe first let's get through the simple plot of the suspense story and then go on to talk about all these scenes and what Antonioni is trying to teach us through his pictures.
1: Well, sure. So as we mentioned, our setting is 1960s swing in London, and our protagonist, played by David Hemmings, he's a photographer. He's primarily known as a fashion photographer and and very well-known and much sought after for his fashion photography. But we see he also has ambitions to be kind of an artistic photographer and wishes to come out with a book. And one day he's waiting, he has some time to kill, and so he goes into a beautiful London park, well-manicured lawns and gardens, and fenced in with some woods off in the distance and he sees this couple, an older man and a younger woman. Vanessa Redgrave is the woman there from a distance. And so he decides he's going to be a voyeur and hide in the bushes and hide behind trees and take these kind of candid shots of this couple as they seem to be just having a leisurely day in the park. But ultimately the woman, Vanessa Redgrave, notices that he's been photographing them and she runs after him and demands his camera and she demands her privacy in this park. She ought to be at peace and he's interrupting it. Well, he refuses to give it up to her, and eventually we come to realize that she's going to do a lot of things to try to get these photographs from him. She goes to his apartment. She tries to take the photos there. He gives her a false roll of film, and he begins to develop and print these photographs, and he blows them up, and further and further what he notices is that through a very much enlarged photo that there's a man with a gun in one of the bushes and it's a beautifully orchestrated scene by Antonioni where we have the black and white photo stills and then the camera moves to kind of show the scene that we had already seen in the park as he was taking these photos. And then he blows up another photo and he sees that there looks to be a dead body underneath the tree. He decides he's gonna to go to the park that evening, and there, sure enough, there's the dead body. Now notice he never calls the cops or anything, but he's stumbled upon a crime. So what looked to have just been some beautiful moment in the park, a peaceful park, really what's going on there is that there's deep violence. Eventually the woman, we don't see this, but somebody breaks into his studio apartment where his black room is and his photo studios and steals all of his photographs. And so all he's left with is just one super blown up photo that just looks like a bunch of black and white and gray dots. And so he's lost his evidence. He decides he will go back to the park to see if he can find the dead body. Sure enough, there is a dead body there, but once again, still doesn't call the cops. He's looking for his agent to try to help him, but his agent is not gonna be able to do him. His agent's at a party where everybody's taking drugs and smoking marijuana, and our hero here, David Hemmings, decides to go ahead and join in with them. He wakes up the next morning to go to the park, and sure enough, the body is gone. Framing this movie at the beginning and at the end is a group of mimes, and so we have the mime troupe at the beginning, disrupting city life in London, and now the mime troupe here has shown up at the park, and it's David Hemmings and the mime troupe as he watches them mimic a tennis match, with even spectators watching the ball go back and forth. And these mimes see David Hemmings watching their game, and they hit the ball out over the fence, and they gesture to him to go and pick up the ball, and David Hemmings decides, okay... I'll play along. And so he goes and picks up the ball and throws it back to them. And that's how the movie ends with, we've lost the dead body. He never reports the crime. And now he's just going to play along with the mime troops. He has his camera at the end, but the final shot is just a large zoom out of the green field in the park as David Hemmings just becomes a tiny little speck within through the movie. And that's basically it. I've heard this movie described by several people as a movie where nothing happens. Well, we do see one thing. We see this transformation of David Hemings, the photographer outside the world, wanting to capture it on film, an observer. But then he all of a sudden realizes that there are things going on in London like a crime and he wants to solve it. He wants to capture it, but the body disappears and the crime is never solved and the movie ends.
0: Yeah, this seems to be what's at stake in the movie. The beginning and the end tell you that somehow the mimes are very important, and they're very important personally to our protagonist, David Mm Hemmings. And on the other hand, the core of the movie is this murder, which turns from invisible to visible as he begins to pay attention to the images he has captured and then to the reality they depict. And then the image and the object (coughs) both turn from visible to invisible (coughs) again. We as the audience following David Hemmings around are privy to this thing that nobody in London can learn about. Not Mm -hmm. David's friends, not the people he works with or works on. Nobody else knows this. It's a secret that Antonioni will disclose for our sake so that we can understand David's relationship to the mimes or in what way he Mm -hmm. is transformed. As you pointed out at the end, he's no longer the protagonist. He's just a part of a big picture, and he's a very small part at that. And this seems to be what he has to learn and what we have to learn. That's Mm -hmm. the truth of things. But if you think about it, it perfectly matches the beginning, where he's just a guy among other guys. You don't even know he's the protagonist at first. Mm -hmm. He's coming out of this DOS house. All these beggars, poor people were housed there so that they could wash and clean themselves up. This is the ugly underbelly of London, but it's also a certain attempt at humanity. Somebody is trying. There are legal, political institutions of an administrative character that are trying to help these people out. They don't fit in London, obviously. Nobody wants them. Nobody's going to give them a home, so to speak. Maybe they're not fit to live among us, but there's some help given them. They can clean themselves up. They can try and be a bit more human. Our protagonist, David Hemmings, is one of them, and he is hiding among them, and you see that he goes from invisible to visible there. He goes from a small speck in a big picture to being the center of attention. That would seem to be the motion of the movie entirely from beginning to end, and this is why the mimes are the frame that helps us understand what's changing and what's staying the same in this picture. Our protagonist, his strange combination of King of London impudence and haughtiness and imperiousness, and on the other hand, this quality of an interloper, of a voyeur, of a breaking and entering type of guy. He chats with these other hobos, but then he ducks out and he's clearly looking around. He's worried that somebody might see him, but then he just jumps into his Rolls Royce, his Rolls Royce.
1: A and, convertible Rolls Royce.
0: Exactly. Exposed, right? It's a convertible. And all of a sudden, we have this King of London now.
1: Wow, what a shock. It's an extraordinary scene where he's driving down the street and we see he has this car radio where he begins to talk to people and he has this coded language code. 394 or whatever it is and he's got information in his convertible and all of a sudden he appeared to be just one of the fellows although younger who are staying in this DOS house and all of a sudden we realize this guy's got something else going on and so those few scenes individuate him and he'll become the focus we realize well he's got wealth and then of course he's driving towards his studio where he's an hour or so late for some fashion photography. So now we see, what was he doing in this flop house? Well, we know he's hiding out there to take photos, to show life on the lower rungs of the ladder in London in the 1960s. But now here we see him now at the heights in his studio with these beautiful models, the Russian model Varuska, and he's now going to be taking fashion photos, which will be displayed in all the glossy magazines and on billboards and the like of this new consumer-driven pop culture of glamour that he is at the center of, like you said, The king, in a way.
0: Yep, and uh, he's first at the bottom, he quickly emerges at the top. He's a shapeshifter of a kind, and this teaches us a couple of things about him, first of all. He thinks he's invisible, because he's the eye and camera that looks at everybody else in some sense he is the correlative of these institutions that try to help the poor out like shelters and all these things he is there looking at all the ugliness taking Mm -hmm. pictures of the ugly bodies of ugly poor people this apparently doesn't scare him but in fact it attracts him before we learn he's a fashion photographer and a fashionable character himself, beautiful women throw themselves at him. The first thing we actually learn is he's among these nobodies, the losers of modern society, the people who are mm-hmm. miserable and drab, not the people who are fashionable and glamorous. And we then see some of these pictures in his book. He wants to put out a book, not just all these magazines and fleeting images. He wants something more substantial and perhaps timeless as features mm-hmm. are, of course, by definition, timeless. He wants to give an account of London, we eventually learn, so it's natural for him to move from high to low and back. Mm-hmm. Now, the weird thing about what he's doing is that he thinks he himself is invisible and that the camera is the only thing that matters. Now, throughout most of the movie, we'll see him dressed in a pair of dockers with a blue shirt, sleeves rolled up. He's dressed decently, what we would call business casual today, but he clearly mm-hmm. has a flair. He's attractive, he's young, he wants to show that off. He wants to be comfortable and negligent at the same time, nonchalant, puts on a very attractive air. That's why he's our protagonist. We love this guy. But the first photo shoot is not like that. It's before he has changed into his glamorous persona, and it is in fact the most highly erotic moment in the movie.
1: Yeah, you know, somewhat of a parody moment in other films, but we have this one-on-one photo shoot with the model Vrushka, and he's holding the camera the whole time, and all of a sudden we see the relationship of David, Hemmings, and then the camera in the middle, and then the object of the photography on the other end, in this case, the model, and he begins barking commands. He becomes more and more tyrannical, dominant in this situation, telling the model what to do, do this, do that, he'll scream at her, and yet he moves closer to her, always with the camera in between himself and her as he's capturing these moments and photograph and antonioni is hitting us a bit over the head here because he keeps saying yes 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 and there's a famous scene where he is holding the camera with the lens pointing downwards as he's about to mount this model and take close-up photos of her and you get to this kind of climactic scene after all of these photographs have been taken yes 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 he's capturing it and once he's completed it then he just stands up, walks over to the couch, and he's done with this model. But we see his outsider stance is not just a pure, innocent looking. There's a domineering element or even tyrannical element to it, and it's almost violent, connected to his erotic attachment to his object, who is there just to be captured on his photograph. And then once that is completed, he's completely done with it.
0: Yep. This reminds us, of course, of Plato's Republic, where Socrates says, Eros is a tyrant. Mm -hmm. And Antonioni is trying to say, look at the 60s. This is what you're really consuming. You want the pictures, you want the billboards, you want all these hot babes, all these gamines, (laughs) all these vamps, all these women who are sexually available, who are erotically charged. This is what you really want. And we learn two things that are deeply disturbing and that have to do with our fundamental nature. One of them is, as you said, this guy is tyrannic while he wants to get something. And after he thinks he's got it, he doesn't care anymore.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: In the era of the frat boys, this is known as the pump and dump.
1: (laughs) Yeah,
0: I suppose so. It's an art movie. It's a very beautiful scene, but it is morally very serious about what the hell this is. It's screwed up is what it is. Mm -hmm. And the woman likes it. You know, just like the scene would make our academic feminist friends go hysterical and talk about the male gaze and all that stuff, mm-hmm. which Antonioni would largely agree with, the notion that the woman likes it might infuriate them even more than the fact that the man wants it and that's even harder to stomach but again antonioni is unrelenting he will really show you what's going on here and it does end up with the man on top of her and his instrument is this camera Mm -hmm. now this points out the second issue the character of desire if your desire is for the beautiful then once you've seen this beautiful woman then that's done that's it's right over you want an ice cream here's an ice cream you've eaten the ice cream it's done it's over there's no desire left what now i guess you're gonna have to chase another desire but that's not all there is to desire as we know already about our protagonist david he wants london he takes pictures of the human scene his interest in it may be essentially unsatisfiable Mm -hmm. It's one thing to take these pictures. It's one and done. It's another thing to be curious about London, to not make yourself a jobber. I'm a fashion photographer. That's why I get the Rolls Royce. Everybody Mm -hmm. wants fashion photography. The people have elected me, really.
1: People buy He's highly in demand. He has women coming after all of them. I mean, the initial photo shoot is followed by a second one with four or five models there and these translucent plastic things hanging from the ceiling and all these kind of crazy angles and really goofy looking but surely modish or modish fashion. And, you know, once again, we hear him barking orders again. We see the tyrant in him, but we see this desire amongst these young women to be captured by him. They themselves, his desire is once he's captured them in photograph, he's done, and their desire is just to be captured, but apparently in a photograph. We never actually see any real sex in this movie. It seems to always be mediated through this kind of capturing it on the image.
0: Yep, that's a very important point. In some strange way, eroticism is always abstracted in this movie. And the one scene about two-thirds of the way through where sex is suggested, it is not shown. And -hmm. there's a reason for that. It seems like Antonioni believes that you cannot show that. There are limits to what the camera can capture. So with these first two scenes, first there's this erotic encounter with the model. Then this weirdly abstract, artsy, beautiful shoot with four or five women where he's Mm -hmm. again imperious, tyrannic, but he has no desire for them. And he eventually throws them out, tells them to go think about things, as it were, takes a break. There, as you pointed out, there are all these abstract geometric poses, angles, and construction of scenes that are abnormal, is what they are. They're abnormal Mm -hmm. in the direction of abstract geometry, and they seem to reduce human beings to parts of a picture, of a mise-en-scene, of a construction. They're inhuman, unlike the one-on-one thing we had seen before. But as you pointed out, this reveals further the character of Desire. We see from the beginning that this guy is a tyrannic, erotic man. He wants what he wants and he's going to get it. And in between those two scenes, he has shifted to this persona. He changes out of his bum
2: clothes Mm
0: -hmm. into this successful, nonchalant, beautiful young man that he will Mm -hmm. be playing for the rest of the movie. But another thing changes too. We realize that these women are even more desperate to have their pictures taken than he is to take their pictures. We are the consumers, who just look at these pictures, so we don't quite understand this, but Antonioni steps beyond that and shows us how the pictures are produced. How do we with mm-hmm. all this erotic consumerism that, since the 60s, floods our society? Well, look at it. There are these guys who think they're on top of the world and can treat women badly. Why? Because the women are even more desperate than they are. These women Mm -hmm. are themselves erotically charged. This is what we see, first of all, with Verushka. The woman seems to want to be dominated. And the more he does it, the more she assumes this ecstatic sexual demeanor. And that shows you something about our world. It's not enough to have pictures of pretty women. It's not enough to have them naked or what have you. What we want is to see them erotically awakened. We want mm-hmm. to believe that the women staring at us from those pictures are erotically desiring us. They're not.
1: Mm-hmm. At best, well, we it's see his kind of guy. tyranny here. As he barks commands, one of the things he barks to the models in the group scene is smile. He says, You must appear to be enjoying this. You must appear to be happy. Just as with Veruska, he says, Get on the floor, arch your back. He's issuing commands here to capture an image that can be consumed. An image of eroticism, but as you pointed out, behind this, we see the women who have to demean themselves in order to achieve this, and they seem to be willing to do it. And yet, on the other hand, we have this man who just barks orders without any care or concern. And yep. yet, when those things would be published in magazines, this is not what is going to be shown.
0: Yep. And because the movie allows you to see moving pictures and speeches, it can reveal something that magazine covers wouldn't, that photo shoots as consumed wouldn't. And the point of getting this insider view, this expose, this revelation of what is concealed, of the process rather than the product that emerges from it, is to show the human situation behind the art. And Mm -hmm. it turns out that these women want to be coached. They want to be dominated because they want to be loved by everybody. And this is the Mm -hmm. man who can make it happen. He can make the world love them by making them into what the world wants to love. He can Mm -hmm. bark orders at them, pretend to be this thing that people find lovable. This is what the women are there for. He's only part of the process from their point of view. And in a sense, that's why they're so willing to be tyrannized and demeaned. It's just Mm -hmm. part of a job. It's not personal.
1: It's very impersonal. That's correct. You know, and we see here in these opening scenes as well that David Hemmings' character, he's on top of the fashion world. We know that he's trying to collect some photographs of men in the Doss house on the bottom of the ladder. He has this odd studio with assistants and his convertible Rolls-Royce and his uh, radio in the car and code language and so on. But he also, on the phone, we realize, and will come to realize, that he is looking into buying some other properties on the other side of the city. He seeks to maybe buy an antique store. He wants to expand his empire to something else, perhaps. This moves us to further scenes in the movie, which will lead us towards the scene in the park where he will take the photos of Vanessa Redgrave and the man who we find out later was actually murdered at that scene. So he has some kind of ambition in London. He wants to cover it all. He has the Doss House, he has fashion photography, he drives around the streets in his Rolls-Royce. He wants to go to a neighborhood that is maybe an up-and-coming neighborhood. He tells us that there's gay men there walking their poodles, that this could be refurbished or gentrified in some way. He kind of wants to capture everything, including even the past, I suppose, by having just an odd assemblage of antiques in a store. In a way, he wants to spread out all throughout London, the top, create a kind of master image that could be shown as a billboard, but then to spread his tentacles all the way down to the bottom and then outwards to the past and perhaps the future. So he has some kind of ambition. We don't, it's never stated. It's Kuwait. It has to do just simply, I suppose, with his desire, his longing. And we know that his longing wants control. And this is in part what being this photographer is, this kind of capturing. And that's what leads to the scene in the movie when he goes out to look at the antique store where he's in the park. And it's very spontaneous. It's another odd thing, the connection between spontaneity and aimlessness and tyranny. We have this undirected desire. The owner of the antique store is not there to talk to him. So he says, well, I've got some time to kill. Let's go into the park. And then that leads to another aspect of capturing more of the city, this quiet peaceful, what appears to be just encounter between a man and a woman, two lovers. This could be added to his book, we're told later. And so this spontaneity with the aimless moving connected to this desire or eroticism that we know he has connected to his desire to control, to capture and even tyrannize over things. It's an interesting juxtaposition shown just through very few scenes here in the first third of the movie or so.
0: Yep. You're right that this is an essential part of characterization precisely because it shows, as you put it, on the one hand, he's aimless, on the other hand, he seems to want everything. There's nothing about this world that he doesn't want to grab, capture. And I believe that's supposed to show what is ultimately going to come out of the 60s. It is going to be tyranny.
2: The Mm -hmm. images
0: of possession are not a replacement for the desire for possession. They're only a preparation for it. They only stoke desire further. The desire fundamentally cannot be satisfied. It can only be desire. Being desirous is what it means. Like this guy, whatever he captures, he wants more. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important to show how far his ambition reaches, however clueless he is. He he doesn't have self-knowledge. That's very important.
2: Yeah, but you for can sure.
0: understand his character nevertheless because Antonioni understands it and he's willing to show it. And to give an example of the humorous way Antonioni uh, explains what's going on in the antique store, he says, You know, mm-hmm. I'd like to get some landscapes. Do you have pictures of landscapes? Well, mm-hmm. it turns out, no, you can't get pictures of landscapes. So he goes to the <laughs> landscape and takes his own picture of landscapes.
2: That's right.
0: <laughs> in the park. And it's, of course, a very British landscape, it's nature but presented in a way that human beings are interested in it. So it is manicured, cleaned up, but it retains beautiful touches of wilderness. Trees here and there, bushes here and there, not just the lawn. This is the sort of thing that characters would be talking about in a Jane Austen novel as the British ideal of nature, as Mm -hmm. opposed to Americans who, especially in the West, love the wilderness and grandeur of nature that speaks to the savagery of the American heart, or the French... Like hyper uh, geometrized, ordered <laughs> gardens, which mm-hmm. speaks to their manners. The British here we have
1: kind of a mixture, yep. it's neither wild and savage nor overly geometricized. Uh, it is clean. Uh, we see a woman, a park attendant, picking up the garbage. Uh, it's manicured, the grass is mowed, and uh, but the wilderness is fenced off. Uh, that wilderness does, we'll learn later uh, conceal, uh, violence and danger with a man with a gun hidden within there. But you're right. It's uh, the antique store. He wants a older picture of a landscape. He, uh, but he's not the guy who's there is not going to sell it to him. Um, and so he just happens upon a park where he just happens upon these two, this couple, and once again, another opportunity for him to capture the image.
0: Yep, and uh, that again shows up his shamelessness. He knows that we are all now shameless. We want stuff and we're going to stare at it shamelessly. And so he does too. He's our leader. He Mm -hmm. shows something, he sees something, he wants to grab it. He wants to show it to other people too. He doesn't care that this girl doesn't want to be photographed. The more this is an image of British respectability, this beautiful park... A sign of aristocracy and this well-dressed man who's obviously the kind of guy who would be working in the city in a very good suit that is nevertheless sober, not flamboyant. And a mm-hmm. girl dressed in a modish uh, yeah. short dress and that again suggests desire is infecting everybody. This guy should probably not be going out with a girl half his age. That's she right. Yep. If he's as respectable as he presents himself he shouldn't be going out with such a girl. But desire is infecting everything transforming every part of london not to say the world and that's already visible if you pay attention to it but at that point david is not willing to pay attention to stuff he just notices the thing grabs him and Mm -hmm. the cluelessness of the character and the happenstance character of the story we stumble onto a plot through Mm -hmm. the well-constructed poeticized images That's supposed to reproduce the character of the experience of the beautiful. It seizes you. You hit Mm -hmm. upon something, it strikes. It is not premeditated. And works of art, of course, conceal that. Like the art of Antonioni pretends. It creates this unpredictability to reproduce the character of experience. But of course, it was all planned out. Mm -hmm. It was all prepared. It was storyboarded, rehearsed, shot, edited. All of it was manufactured, but it's supposed to reproduce our experience, and this is what makes it worthwhile. Antonioni knows the human heart. That is what is on display in an artful way that conceals its own art.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, in, to put it in another way, the, w- w- this, perhaps the best statement on the 60s, was not done by w- somebody of the 60s, but a much older man who came from a very different world. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a combination of high things and mid things and low things. It's uh, the old master Antonioni, one of the great directors. Uh, He's got Herbie Hancock, the great jazz man, doing the Mm -hmm. score. But you see, the Yardbirds were just a popular band of no importance Mm -hmm. uh, playing at some point in the movie. Jazz is way higher, way more refined. And it has a kind of sophistication that the brutal version of rock we see there doesn't. But on the other hand, rock is way more popular, so the low and the popular go together. The refined mm-hmm. is esoteric, comparatively,
1: and... You even we even briefly, both. we have in one of the photo shoots uh, with the models, you hear the Love and Spoonful song, Did You Ever Have to Make Up Your Mind, with the line to the effect of, you know, you see one girl cute as a button, and she attracts you but then long comes her sister and now she attracts you too you know one doesn't want to have to make up one's mind one can just move from one thing to the next as it kind of strikes you but here is just a very brief glimpse that this is not antonioni kind of confirming this or or approving of it or even of rejecting it he's showing it showing what kind of even the pop songs of the day are kind of reflecting this uh, just spontane seemingly spontaneous movement and uh you know our our character here thinks he can capture it all but antonioni in itself has a a framework which kind of mimics that spontaneity but yeah of course this whole thing is perfectly planned out the street scenes of london where we have kind of brutalist architecture uh, juxtaposed right next to the older uh, buildings in london these kind of garishly painted buildings in red and blue we have uh modern office buildings As he drives through in his Rolls Royce, Uh, we have an antique store and maybe an up-and-coming neighborhood. So it seems, you know, Antonioni is kind of showing this uh, thing. There's even parts where we see construction, uh, and it looks as if, you know, it looks like something London after the Blitz, because everything's just blown blown up, as it were, to use the title. Uh, Even even David says about the neighborhood, it's going to blow up, and so the blow up leaves us with just parts shards or things just juxtaposed next to each other that don't really seem to have any kind of congruence. But Antonioni's picture as a whole is trying to show us some kind of uh, nature here, as you pointed out, that this is going to lead to uh, unpleasant results. There's something tyrannical about blowing things up and just moving from one thing to the next.
0: Yep. And so we get these two clues. The, the very amusing Love in Spoonful song is partly characterization for David himself, but partly mm-hmm. supposed to show what is the problem with loving the beautiful. Well, it does mean if a prettier girl shows along, you're going to have to love her next.
2: <laughs> and mm-hmm. that's
0: supposed to show that it's a kind of slavery. You don't choose this. Mm-hmm. First, one thing seizes you, then another thing seizes you. Freedom means being a leaf blown by winds in
1: this mm-hmm. version.
0: And David There's is not of aware of in that. The
1: movie. There's a yep. lot of wind in the movie, too. This, the, the sound of the wind is kind of important in this movie, and he's just kind of blown and buffeted by the winds. Yep. Um, and, of course, and the he,
0: importance of it is that it is invisible. Air or wind is true. the invisible mover that moves things that are themselves visible. It is the cause that changes things, but we only see the effects. And this brings up the other problem. As you said, London is blowing up, and in a certain way, the whole world is blowing up. As the democracy of Eros emerges, it also prepares something, the tyranny of Eros, as we were saying. And we're not there yet. We're in the incipient stage before everything has blown up. We're supposed to understand something at its root or in its moment of causation and emergence at the source before it becomes worldwide, so to speak, before it takes everything mm-hmm. over, because at that point it is no longer recognizable. It is precisely that you can see high and low in future and past, the most modern things, the obsolete things, that allows you to make comparisons and by mm-hmm. contrast to suggest movements and from movements to go on to thinking about structures and causation.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: When once everything blows up, well, we're all in that world now. You don't get an outside perspective. You do not get uh, the, the vantage point you would need to look at it from a distance to
1: gain perspective. And That's right, or maybe I, maybe even only after the fact. I mean, the, the kind of the lack of self-knowledge is important. Uh, uh, David has a neighbor, so he must live in some kind of artist neighborhood, and his neighbor is a painter and an artist, and he does these abstract paintings, kind of drip paintings, uh, with kind of pointless, uh, but they don't represent any kind of, they're non-representational and the painter tells him, you know, my paintings, I don't know what I'm doing. I just start putting colors onto the canvas and then it's done. And then at the end, maybe I might find something I can grab onto, but I have no idea what I'm going into when I'm going into it. And from a distance, it just looks like a bunch of dots. It's interesting the photography in the movie itself is incredibly grainy and so you see the grain in the photography just as you see the points in the painting and of course this will become important in the photographs later the graininess as you begin to blow it up uh, there seems to be uh antonioni is pointing us that, that what is it that can kind of bring this together uh, could very well be some kind of tyrannical eros but uh right now we're still at the point where we, we can see the parts next to each other, but it's hard to connect them. We lack some kind of self-knowledge. And maybe a rage to try to connect these things is itself going to be problematic uh, yep. for, for, for life. Yep. Or live and, well.
0: Uh, this is a great comparison because these are the two men Antonioni shows us as next to each other who are somehow uh, going to help us understand. Why does it matter if you're in love with the beautiful like a photographer or a painter is what the hell does this matter well it's supposed to be revelatory of the new thing revealed in human in humanity eroticism is not new but in democracy it blows up everybody is going to be this way seems to be what antonioni is showing because otherwise these are just two people and they don't matter there's a lot of other people Antonio is saying everybody is not in fact different, everybody is the same in certain ways. One of them is that they're all led by their desires and therefore have no self-knowledge and can only discover themselves by staring at other things. We are tempted to become voyeurs. How do Mm -hmm. you know what your imagination is, what your fantasies are, what your dreams are? You gotta see it. And you'll see it in the works of the workmen who make the beautiful. They are the ones who describe the secrets in all of our hearts. And that is the only way all of us can come together. What makes for fellow feeling or common experiences in democracies? Shared desires. We all end up desiring the same things. The tyranny of eros emerges out of democratic eroticism because of this. Convergence of desire, of taste, of obsession with the same beautiful things. And that means that these artists also are not in control. They're just leading a parade they can't control. And they're they're quite different. The painter is aware of the fact that he's looking for his own soul on canvas, and he can't quite get there because he has no intention, no planning out. He's Mm -hmm. an artist without art. And at the same time, he has realized that even though he's not in control of things, some things emerge that he can later recognize. He can come to Mm -hmm. a certain partial self-knowledge. And that's connected to the fact that he actually has sex with a woman.
2: Mm -hmm. That's right. uh,
0: It's, of course, not shown exactly, but you know it's there. He's way more natural than David. David doesn't have the ambition of uh, an artist in a studio. His ambition is to roam around London and get it all on camera, get it Mm -hmm. all on film. But he never gets to have sex with anybody because his eroticism is essentially masturbatory. And (laughs) that's the suggestion from the first thing on. And at the end of it, there's no product. There's no result. That's the point of the end of the movie, that you don't get anything out of this. You are not producing in the element of the beautiful in any other way than as art. All you can produce is a work of art. It is not an erotic production. Ultimately, the beautiful becomes anti-erotic. Mm -hmm. and david learns that the hard way but even before everything turns uh dangerous you see there's murder there Mm -hmm. is something about the difference between the two of them david seems to be way more sure that his instrument gives him power that he can grab london put it in a book become famous buy the rolls royce be the object of desire for all these women who want to be desired themselves. He thinks he is the mediator of desire. But it's not as simple as that because he is himself deluded. He never asks the question, why do I want all this stuff? Who taught me to want everything? He is the perfect emblem of democracy and as the favored son, must become the tyrant. Again, as we learn from the... Uh, stories Socrates tells in books eight and nine of Plato's Republic.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And the fact that he's not aware that he's not in control of his desires, that he's not in control of what he's searching for, and that he doesn't know when you get it, what are you going to get? He thinks that it is as simple as you see a landscape, people kissing, take a picture.
1: Mm-hmm. What but he can't, cap- he can't capture it. I mean, so turns out there's something real going on there, namely murder and death. So there's limits to what he seems to be unaware of, his desire. He thinks he can capture it in a way that he can wrap it up in a book. But outside of that is still going to be murder and death. And, and that's one thing that, of course, eludes us all, is that we're all going to die. And so, you know, one of the things that David tells us he wants to do is be free. You know after he captures these photographs and has an encounter with Vanessa Redgrave's character he has lunch with his agent and he's shown him the photos from the flop house and uh David tells us you know I'm sick of London right you know the I'm tired of these women you know I need to get this book published make a lot of money and then I'm out of here you know then I'll be free he says and of course his agent points towards one of the photos you know what do you mean to be free free like him and he points the photo of a black and white photo of a you know, a bum, homeless man on the street. You know, what is freedom? But for David, freedom is tyranny. So that's the odd contradiction because of his lack of self-knowledge and his kind of aimlessness or aimless desire, aimless eroticism. Uh, this is what uh, what will end up for him. He's he he is seeking for freedom, which is going to be the biggest trap for him of all. And he can't capture uh, uh, it in such a way that he can hold on to it that he too will die just like as he finds out that the man was murdered. I mean, there's not just death, there's murder. And that seems to somehow indicate what his eros to capture can't capture in a sense of him understanding what's going on. Yep.
0: David has unsuspected depths, and he's the first man not to suspect them. Uh, Antonioni's Mm. uh, great joke about him is that in the antique shop, he ends up buying a propeller. (laughs) He's mm-hmm. he's the kind of man who confuses the propeller from for, for the engine. Yeah, you need the propeller to fly, but it's not going to get you up there. You cannot be free in the sense you want to be because your camera is just a propeller. It's not an engine.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The engine of desire is somewhere else. And uh, this also has to do with the other joke he may plays on David, that is to say the sign the mimes give him, which is go away. Yeah. <laughs> At the beginning... And yeah, that's what he wants, to go away, to be free. He's aware at some level that being free means being homeless. That's why he went to look at the homeless at the fundamental level or secretly. He's trying to figure out, is this the life worth living? That Mm -hmm. is why he's always obsessed about shooting pictures of people. As opposed to other things. Is this the life worth living? Is this freedom? Is this the thing that I want? He realizes that his desires have made him homeless. Like the homeless are homeless. Like these mm. girls who are always chasing after him. They too are homeless. And everybody else in this picture is homeless too. Literally. Right. And uh, he, he's looking for some kind of escape from that. Which would be a home. And, and he, maybe he can he learn to be at have, home.
1: Yeah, he thinks you can have just peace. He speaks of the park as peace. Even Vanessa Redgrave speaks, I should be at peace in the park. And of course, the people who give him the sign that says go away, are student protesters, right, and uh, calling for peace, for world peace. And so somehow, this desire seems to be moving all towards converging towards some idea of peace. And what it leaves out, of course, is once again, murder and death, and that which can't be captured. And so so, so somehow this obsessive convergence or seeking for some kind of peace or freedom um, is, is leaving out uh, what can't be captured. There's, there's going to be violence or there's going to be war. There's going to be death.
0: Yep. So we see what happens with democratic freedom. Everybody experiences the chaos and at some point they want out. They want to mm-hmm. escape from motion into rest. They want to get to peace. But instead, what is revealed is war. And to bring up another part from Plato's Republic, David Hemmings learns to stare at corpses. <laughs> and this is one of the things that we're told. Why? Why do we have this fascination? We know it's ugly. Why does the ugly fascinate us? And this seems to be somehow derived from that first desire for the beautiful somehow mm-hmm. love of the beautiful which is what leads david to take all these pictures leads him to love of the ugly mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the ugly bodies of the hobos are first intimation of that but then it's actually a corpse and to add one more element to show just how deeply antonioni has reflected on the character of our desires he first thinks he's a savior what he tells people is <laughs> i saved a life today
2: with that's right. <laughs> the camera
0: because look there's a gun in that picture i saved a life
2: mm-hmm.
0: and uh this is supposed to teach us how to think first of all about the movie that's one picture there's a gun there somebody didn't get shot because you were taking pictures all right but the picture is not the whole of the world there is not just this picture of things there is a sequence of things too mm-hmm. pictures cannot capture time and he doesn't understand this Thinking through the mm-hmm. sequence of pictures he has taken takes him long, long, long. And he keeps equivocating between the images he has taken and the place where he took those images. Mm-hmm. And all, he's looking at the world, but what he's looking for actually is time or sequence.
2: Mm-hmm. In the
0: picture that makes him proud, he did save a life. But in later yeah. pictures, it turns out, just like in the reality later, that life was not in fact saved. Some man was murdered. We don't know why, because all you get is a picture. A picture does not include the human heart or the motivations that lead to
1: murder. You know, he doesn't seem to have the kind of struggle, internal struggle, of wanting to, getting angry at himself for recognizing a desire to look at dead bodies. Uh, he just seems, he he sees the dead body. He, we know he's attracted by the beautiful uh, but it, it, since it's this kind of aimless way, you know, when it turns to the ugliest thing, a corpse, he uh, he wants to capture it once again. He wants to look at it, but he never, he has that desire. He doesn't seem to have any kind of sense that maybe there's something wrong about this. Maybe there's something unholy about just wanting to gaze at the dead body. Um, perhaps he, he even wants to get a photo of it. Um, Uh, But then when he walks out to the park the next morning uh, to get a photo of it, the body is gone. So it's not there for him to be able to picture. But he lacks that kind of sense of uh, internal struggle uh, of between uh, uh, what his desire wants and uh, perhaps some kind of a sense of having to restrain that desire. Um, He like you said, he immediately thinks of himself as a hero. Right. This is it's that peace thing again. Right. I stopped a murder hooray for me. And then he realizes, oops, there's a corpse there. But then, okay, there's a corpse there. Let's go look at it. Surely don't call the cops.
0: Yes, this is apolitical. This is before we can talk about anything like justice or the regime. And as you so astutely point out, there's a reason why we never get to the cops. He has no fear of corpses or no shame before them. The enormity of mortality doesn't phase him as it should. There is something missing in him. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: But you could say that that's the problem with David. He's never in his own skin. He's always jumping out of his own skin through that camera to whatever it is that he has seen. And what makes this so hilarious is that before you put a camera to take a picture, as we see with David, you first have to look at it naturally. (laughs) But he never thinks about that, that... He's always in his own skin. He cannot escape his own body. He always thinks that putting a camera to his eyes means that he can leap out of his own skin and capture the world and not be involved with it. And as he becomes involved, he becomes very confused. Now, we know two things about the character of his confusion. One of them is his own immoderate eroticism. Eventually, he does have sex with those two mod girls who want him to take his pictures. He's sort of raping them, and they're sort of wanting it.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that's a disturbing thing all by itself, but Antonioni is also pointing something else out by sequence as opposed to scene, which is he was trying to figure out what the hell was happening in that park that <laughs> day, and then he was distracted. And Easily it turns distract- out that an erection is not a very good guide to the truth about the dangerous things in this world. <laughs> That's right.
1: <laughs> right? So he's, I mean, he's just stumbled upon here, the dead body, and the two girls show up. And then we have this long sequence. And here we see kind of the domineering, tyrannical character again. Make me some coffee is the first thing he tells them. And the girls just kind of giggle and do whatever he says. They try on his clothes. And it leads to this sort violent, quasi-playful, uh, quasi-rape. Type scene where he is first dominating them and one girl's even yelling no no and then as they continue to undress then they tackle him and they undress him and they're all laughing and then uh, the, you have a cut scene and they've put all their clothes back on and David captures he, he sees the photo again of the dead body and he's like, oh yeah, I was on something here. Get out, right come back tomorrow right? I've got to get back on the thing that that, that I had discovered through uh, the murder here. And so he's easily distracted just simply by whatever is coming along that it, it attracts his eroticism.
0: So one more remark from Plato's Republic. Uh, there is a moment there where the noble young man whose agony at the weakness of justice causes the whole discussion to get so uh, strange and tremendous, says it's not possible for our spiritedness or our anger to conspire against reason and instead ally itself with our appetites to make mm-hmm. us unreasonable.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, That's right. And Go ahead. Young man
0: talks fill. as though no kid ever threw a temper tra- tantrum in a shop because he wanted, you know, uh, something mom, get me this thing. I'll throw a temper tantrum. My anger and my desires will ally against mom's reasonableness. Of course, it happens all the time, but the noble young man denies it because he can't face Mm -hmm. up to it. With David, it's upside down. He has no nobility. (laughs) His uh, spiritedness and his desire are always mingled in weird ways. And he's sometimes saying, no, I got to be who I am. I got to remember who I am and get on with what I'm doing. And sometimes he's just saying, yeah, whatever. This sounds great. Let's do it. He can never act purposefully because he has no interior discipline, as we would say. He's always buffeted by the winds of desire.
1: And he does, you know, he in the middle of the movie after he discovers, well, when the woman and some man that she's with begin tailing him, we begin to see maybe a little bit of a a show of kind of fear or anxiety on him. He becomes a little bit nervous and agitated. He's got to see what these photos show. And of course it reveals the murder. And all of a sudden he is visibly upset. Yes, he's easily distracted by the young girls, but there is something here that's nagging at him to want to get at with what's going on behind behind the murder. He realizes that somebody else, You know, we have this kind of inversion here he's spying on some on everybody in london but now all of a sudden this woman uh, in order to get those photographs is after him and of course he finds out eventually that they break into his studio and steal all of his negatives all of the prints he's left with nothing to prove what he had captured namely that there was a murder he has nothing anymore
0: yep And it turns out that there's a problem if you translate your experience into objects of art. They can always be separated from you, and you end up being replaced with those objects. Mm -hmm. And to some extent, he's always thought of that as liberating, because somebody wants you to do a job for a magazine, you take the shots, you you send them over, and it's done. You don't have to have a relationship with the models, you don't have to have a relationship with the magazine. You just get the Mm -hmm. job done, and you're free of it your yep. experience has been reduced to those objects of art
1: and of course and he gets the, on, he gets the money he, he gets the money so the objects of art get translated into money which he tells us in the cafe scene with his with his agent that that's what he needs to be free so yep. even even this capturing his eros which leads him to want to capture these images of the beautiful themselves just get transferred into money which will purchase this a very much undefined nature of what freedom is.
0: Yep, and you're right. This is, uh, again, a very astute point. We need to remind ourselves this is what democracy reveals about us. We want stuff, and getting stuff always takes money. Money is, in fact, the correlative of our desires. Mm -hmm. How are you going to practice your desires? You're going to need money. And even in a world where there are not other rules, money all the more rules over us the more we lack things that limit our desires, the more we lack any way to escape the rule of money. Whatever you Mm -hmm. want, well, how are you gonna get it? It's gonna take money. How do you know if you can get what you want? That is to say, be free in the sense of fulfilling your desires. You got (laughs) to get the money to do it. And uh, this is the always on nagging at what David is doing. He knows that this is somehow wrong that's why he's trying to get away from it. But he has no idea how to get away from it. And the, the story shows that he's poking in dark corners, that the thing that he thinks keeps him safe or maybe is even innocent, it's a landscape, people kissing in a park. That's nice. Mm-hmm. That's so nice. <laughs> it's a pretty picture. He wants beautiful pictures. What's wrong with that? Well, it mm-hmm. turns out that there are evil things that look nice. Mm-hmm. It turns mm-hmm. out that in all the disorder and chaos of the freedom of the 60s, there are worse things than hippies. And the hippies aren't aware of that. <laughs> and, uh, when he becomes like he... aware of it, as you said, you know, things keep nagging at him. He, he can never quite shake it off and be his normal self again. He's always trying like this girl shows up and he knows she shouldn't know how to get in touch with him and she shouldn't be so obsessive about wanting what she wants every girl in the world wants him to take a picture this one doesn't mm-hmm. this should give yeah. him to something weird happening it doesn't because she's pretty and again the erection takes over and the but he doesn't get to have sex with her which may in fact be sparing him actually Usually his distractedness get, leads him into trouble, mm-hmm. but in this case it might actually not. It might actually protect him because this woman is privy to a conspiracy to murder. That's right. Yeah, Maybe he himself he shouldn't should become... be getting in her pants. Maybe this will <laughs> keep him safe, not to say, you know, undesecrated. He's mm-hmm. toying with Don. It's Holden. entirely.
1: It's entirely this seemingly random spontaneous events the propeller guy shows up, and then the uh, Vanessa Redgraves character just takes off. So he's saved, but he's saved by accident. Uh, uh, he, he He doesn't realize the trouble that he's in. Of course, he hasn't blown up the photos yet. Yeah. Uh, and then of course, when he blows them up and he's he's seen the dead body itself, but he goes back to his apartment and they're all gone. He now knows he has knowledge that somebody's committed a murder. So he should realize that he's in trouble. He thinks the body's still there, but still doesn't call the police. He he looks for his, his agent friend, Ron, uh, to see if uh, he can get Ron to go out there. And, uh, um, but of course, ultimately when we get out there, there's no, there's no body there. But even looking for Ron, he gets distracted. He sees Vanessa, Redgrave, red Uh, uh, walking down the street. And so he parks his car, it's nighttime London. He goes out and then he finds himself, he looks for her, he loses her. And that's where he finds himself at the Yardbirds concert with both Jimmy Page and Jeff Beck, that era of Yardbirds, uh, playing a song called Stroll On. Apparently Antonioni wanted their version of Train Kept a Rollin', but there was some kind of copyright problem. So they just played the same song with new lyrics. And uh, it's a peculiar scene. Everybody in the audience is entranced with the band. It's not a, what you think of as a rock concert with everybody dancing or waving their fists or clapping their hands. Uh, they just uh, stand there transfixed at the spectacle on the stage. And Hemmings walks in, David Hemings walks in to look for Vanessa. She's not there. Uh, as the band plays, Jeff Beck gets, uh, playing guitar gets frustrated with his amp that's causing a lot of static. And so he eventually just busts up his guitar into the amp, throws the guitar into the audience, the smash guitar. Now the audience goes crazy. And uh, who, who ends up getting the guitar neck? It's none other than David again. He doesn't care for that. And he just walks outside uh, after the, the, the audience chases him and he evades them. He drops the, the guitar neck on the, on the street. And it's just another piece of rubbish. A uh, very peculiar scene going yeah. on here. One of the things interesting is that, uh, you know, here's Jeff Beck or here are the Yardbirds and they're, they themselves are kind of kings of, of swing in London in the sixty. They have all eyes focused upon them. They have the youth transfixed. Um, And yet he gets, Jeff Beck gets frustrated by kind of the static at the edges. That's what leads him to, you know, he wants this perfect song, this perfect sound, but the technology itself is frustrating him. And uh, that's what leads him to smash his guitar. Um, Just as kind of David, uh, he blows up the picture, but the more he blows it up, uh, the more static he gets. He can't kind of see what's going on there. And that's all he's left with now.
0: Yep. And this is a great scene. There's a bunch of stuff going on there that uh, should teach us. And, of course, some of it that should be teaching David. And Mm -hmm. he just doesn't get it at all. I mean, at the end, as you said, he walks away with the guitar neck. It's a broken instrument, guy. You should be thinking about yourself in this situation. But he can't. Mm -hmm. He can't see that these people are him at some level. That Mm -hmm. they want to get the sound that they intend and not the background noise, so to speak. They want the instrument to objectify their will, to give them what mm-hmm. they want, and they're frustrated by the limits of instruments, just like he is. <laughs> he just throws mm-hmm. the broken instrument away. This is none of his concern. He just doesn't get it at all. It's amazing how unself aware this guy is. He cannot see himself <laughs> in these guys either. Mm-hmm. And this is also Antonioni's chance to teach us something about what's going on in the 60s. As you pointed out, this is not a rock concert. It's an underground picture of hell, really. Mm-hmm. You wonder what the hell's mm-hmm. going on here. You see the true kings of men. That mm-hmm. when it's uh, David taking pictures, he has to order these girls around. They are his audience, the audience mm-hmm. is never there.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: uh, on the other hand, you have these gods, you know, the rock gods of the 60s by their sounds they make in trans people. They can turn people into zombies. They can control human beings through music. Mm-hmm. And you would think that music is what animates you. It's the beat. It's the energy of the electric guitar. It's going to get you moving. They're mm-hmm. motionless. The motion has been stolen from them by the show. And David cannot pay attention to this either. He doesn't get just what this means or, or how dangerous it is. Mm-hmm. And then, because the musician is frustrated with the imperfections of his instrument and he breaks it up, the spell is broken. And this motionless <laughs> crowd of zombies turns violent. They charge the stage. Motion all of a sudden resumes. And mm-hmm. you see that it's motion at a bestial level. It's at yes. the level of an animal stampede. It's about grabbing in anger. There's no self-control. And that's part of what Antonioni is teaching here, that you can control people for a while, but taking control away from them makes them lack self-control. What is yes. going to happen when that spell breaks? What is going to happen when the beautiful song of the 60s, this promise of freedom in the anger of the guitar and erotic fulfillment too? Mm-hmm. What happens when that breaks?
1: Some kind of melee, for sure. This is It's not going to be pretty. Um, David barely escapes there This audience is going to beat him up To get that guitar neck And he has to you know he, he has to run for his life to get out of there holding this guitar neck he has no idea why it's interesting the difference between the kind of the music of what the art birds represent music would be something in time they can capture something in time and they don't necessarily have to directly bark the orders right they can kind of tyrannize over their audience indirectly whereas whereas david with his photographs which can't capture time uh, he has to, outside of it, bark and tell the people what to do. Uh, at least the models, what to do. He can't transfix his models. His image might transfix an audience, but the musicians seem to be a lot more powerful, and um, in, in in a way, kind of superior. But as you point out, this trans, you know, this this the way in which they just hypnotize this audience. Uh, when the song breaks down. Uh, there's there's no longer anything there to restrain or control what they're going to do. It's be, once again, this kind of purposelessness of eroticism, uh, complete direct, directionlessness of eros, and now it's been democratized. The whole audience is now going to just go its own direction over and on top of each other. It's an extraordinary scene, it really is. Yep,
0: and uh, again, very astute remark that music is time, pictures are space. And you gotta figure these things out to figure out that the musicians control people from the inside. Mm-hmm. Pictures can mm-hmm. only control you from the outside. Mm-hmm. And the stuff that comes in by your eyes is far less powerful than the stuff that comes into you by your ears. Mm-hmm. And that suggests again that David is in the business of rational control. You construct an image, you comprehend the whole. Nobody Mm -hmm. comprehends the whole when they first hear the bit. You have no idea where it's going, but it's Mm -hmm. taking you with it. You lose self-control. Music reproduces eroticism much better because it is not about the art that constructs in the element of the beautiful. It is about the primary character of Eros. What do we see when Eros is unleashed for once in the story? Chaos. Yep eros and chaos are inseparable erotic production is essentially chaotic as we see with the painter who actually is erotic as we see even with david who keeps being distracted by his eroticism and david doesn't seem to learn much from this stuff that the city that he's obsessed with the more he learns about it the less he learns about himself he can never grasp himself in the city which seems to be the reason why he wants to escape it it's just not mm-hmm. satisfying he can't get no satisfaction.
1: Yeah, yes, that's right. And yeah, so we, we
0: get the last scene. We get this. Well, for a second between the time. Last,
1: we do have the uh, kind of an alternative to the melee of the rock concert breaking down. Is the uh, the pop party where he does find his agent? Here we have kind of another example. It's not a crowd, but it surely is a large group of people at a party. And you hear all these kind of murmurings and conversations, but they're all so stoned out of their minds that none of this is making any sense. And of course, David now is back on the track. He wants to get uh, his agent out there. And his agent says, oh, what are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about. And so what does David do? He joins the party and gets stoned. So I guess the other one, if it's not going to be the fight or the the uh, the riot that the rock concert uh, leads up into it's just going to be kind of zonked out zombies on, on pot uh, who just can't seem to think of anything uh, we see Veruska again and now she she's supposed to be in Paris David says I thought you were supposed to be in Paris and she says I am in Paris I guess with pot you could be wherever you want to be Yep. And,
0: right there's always an alternative to the enthusiasm and hysteria the democracy unleashes catatonia you can turn into a <laughs> lotus eater
2: Mm -hmm.
0: and indeed in her mind she is in paris she has accepted that her desires cannot meet with her body so to speak her mind Mm -hmm. just has to space out all of these guys have got to space out what happens after all the frantic chasing of your desires you're not going to get what you want whatever you were you are going to get it's going to turn out to be not what you thought you wanted Mm -hmm. space out catatonia is therefore the alternative and the necessary consequence of the failure of frantic chasing of desire after desire yep and this guy is finally looking for a friend right the cops may not be his friends but he is looking for a friend there's somebody who can get him money there's somebody who can put his book out there's somebody who is a relationship indirectly between him and london What the camera does for the picture of London, this friend, agent, does for the life of London. And he wants this guy because if he sees the corpse, then I'm not crazy. Then Mm -hmm. he also admits this is real. How do I know that my pictures are any good? He tells me. Yep. How do I know that what I'm seeing is real? He's going to confirm it. David has come to the point where he no longer dares to be alone. Chasing yep. around through London, spending the weekend in the Doss house. These things don't face him at all. But now there is one thing that he doesn't want to face alone, that he needs confirmation for. Somebody else has got to see with his eyes what I see with my eyes to tell me that, yes, it is real. But his mm-hmm. friend won't help.
1: And so he wakes up alone in bed at the, at the party and decides he's just going to have to go out to the park. And, of course, at that point, that's when we find he has his camera with him. He's not shooting anything at this point. Uh, was he going to take a photo of the dead body? But the dead body is gone. So the crime is hidden, and the murderers got away with the crime. And David, they know he knows that they committed the crime, but now there's nothing he can do about it. He's by himself. And lo and behold, who shows up in the park again but the mimes, uh, the mime troupe for the famous tennis match. Yep.
0: And David takes no more pictures. In a sense, he has admitted defeat. He has been humbled. The power mm-hmm. that he thought his instrument gave him over the world, because it gave him power over people's desires to mediate them and fulfill them, mm-hmm. that's done. And now he sees the only thing in the film that is, A, purely imitation, and B, done for its own sake.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Everything else is not just imitation in this movie about musical imitations, picture imitations, etc. But all the other things are also done for a further purpose. They're never done for their own sakes, except Mm -hmm. perhaps the crazy painting of the crazy painter. Now we see these mimes. They're pretending to play tennis. They're the only people without instruments in this movie.
2: They have neither
0: rackets nor balls but the tennis field is there and they're pretending to play tennis and most of them are pretending to watch them play play tennis. So we have gone into full artificiality and we finally see that there is a bit of wisdom to these mimes. They're mocking what everybody else is doing, their imitations, they're spectating the desirable, the beautiful, the attractive. They put Mm -hmm. it on as a show because they understand the show that's Mm. the the city on display as a theater and that in a certain sense makes them free there's a reason they're so happy unlike these other people they're not frantic there's nothing to chase they don't think that it's a smart thing to do to chase desire after desire in the way everybody does
1: and they're sort of making fun of it and And nothing's external to it so they have an audience i suppose they get bigger but here you have an audience you have the mime audience but you don't have an audience audience other than david and of course they ask him to join him when they hit the ball over the fence and the camera follows the ball as it lands out in the field sure enough david says he'll join him uh, here you can mimic here you can have an imitation of the original and yet for what end other than, beyond than just simply pure imitation itself they're not gonna be able to sell this, um, or use it for some kind of instrumental means of control, they're just living it. Yep. And
0: that turns out to be very important for a couple of reasons. We already mentioned that the last shot is very obvious. Antonioni and Carlo di Palma, rub it in your face, that they're zooming out of this. And Mm -hmm. David is now just a splotch, just a grainy dot, as in the painting, as in his own blown up pictures. You have a blow up, is the last picture (laughs) of the uh, movie. But as you pointed out, before that, there is this beautiful motion of the camera imitating the motion of the ball. The ball is invisible. It's not real. The camera moves afterwards, suggesting that in some sense it is real. And, of course, the camera has been following people around all, the, all, all along. The camera tells you what's important and you follow along with it. What these mm-hmm. mimes are supposed to teach you and what Antonioni is trying to get people to understand is what imitation of action really means what he's Mm -hmm. showing you with the mimes is take the instruments away. What's going on there? Now you can see the motions of the people and you can focus on the people themselves.
2: Mm -hmm. Take
0: the instruments away and look at real people. And the important thing here is that this is the justification for the movie. It's not enough to say the 60s are crazy and they're going to get crazier. It's no use blaming or praising it. The first thing to do is to understand what's happening. How is human nature showing itself here? But that's not a justification to make a movie. It's a justification to know, to learn. The justification to make a movie is different. He's saying that only pure imitations are real imitations. That they, sho- they really show you human nature. Whenever mm-hmm. you think that an instrument is going to fix things for you because the instrument is objective and has power, you're deluding yourself.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: The things you see on screen are not real. The only thing real about them is human nature or human action.
1: It, it, the movie, in a way, kind of forces a reflection back on the, on the audience, ourselves. We begin to see kind of the movie as an experience to kind of go through to become aware of <clears throat> the way in which uh, much of our life is uh, has this whole imitative element within it, but rather than just an image, we, we are we're living it. We can become aware of it. and we can see become maybe more uh, with more self-knowledge about what we're doing and uh, towards what we're aiming at. And also, of course, recognizing that that death is going to be there, that violence is always possible on the fringes, that trying to capture pure peaceful moments, trying to just say no to war, simply. Uh, is not going to happen.
0: Yep. The The love scene in the park turns out to include murder. Eros at the rock concert turns out to include chaos. Mm-hmm. These are important things that people no longer see. And Antonioni wants to give us the complete picture. And he wants us to be able to see human things as they are so that we are able to be human. So that the instruments don't take control over us. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this is, of course, as important, the teaching in the digital era as it was in the era of picture taking and picture shows.
1: It sure is. The, the immediacy of kind of digital media, for instance, uh, uh, really conceals uh, the instrumentality of it. And so it, it, it seems as if it's real. And yet, it, uh, you know, we need to be kind of be made more aware of its artificiality uh, and that human life it is not the same thing as an image of human life.
0: Yes. And, uh, of course, like what uh, Antonioni did for pictures and what Coppola did for sound, somebody's going to have to do for digital technology as well to point That's out it. the way these things can enslave you and what it would actually take to realize the limits of them and to face human desires directly without being enslaved by uh, social consumption of imitative desire.
1: Mm-hmm. That's right.
0: John, I hope we have persuaded people that Antonioni was not only a master filmmaker, but that he was a student of human nature who had a very intelligent, coherent way of teaching at the price, of course, of throwing out 90% of the audience. <laughs> yeah. There is a great sacrifice to make, of course, for making such movies, and we're hoping that people who do like Antonioni or are curious about it will give him a chance to educate them. And we're hoping to help that along. Thanks so much again for suggesting this, how to begin to think about Coppola's conversation and what part it plays yes. in what the movie makers try to do as educators.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, we could move to post Sixty San Francisco, a different world, and we move from photographic images to sound recordings on film. Yes. And you know, we'll see a darker and gloomier portrait than what we find in Blow Up in Coppola's conversation.
0: Yep, and uh, you're right with Coppola we're after the hippie 60s we're there for the fallout we're there for the clampdown we're there for the misery that ensued in the 70s (laughs)
2: that's right
0: thank you so much for joining me again it's great to have this trilogy project started and well on its way I'm looking forward to getting on to the next part
1: all the best it was great to be here thank you very much bye 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 bye